Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we are talking about economic enchantments with Astrid van der Bosch, Anat Rosenberg, and Christoph Smears. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about economic enchantments, but before that, can we have uh, you introduce yourselves and your work? Hi, thank you for having us. I'm Astrid Vandenbosch. I'm a lecturer in digital marketing and communications at the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College London. I'm Anat Rosenberg. Hello, thank you for having us. Uh, I am a senior lecturer at the Harry Radina Law School at Reichman University in Israel. I'm also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in the UK and a historian of capitalism. Thank you as well. Um, I'm Christoph Smeyer, a senior researcher at the University of Antwerp. In a past life, I wrote an economic history of Belgium. And since then, I've rebranded and became a historian of religion. What the heck are economic enchantments? And that, do you want to start with that one? I think. No, I think it is a short term for actually enchantment in the economy, and specifically in the capitalist economy. What we have in mind with that is a broad array of modes of thinking and phenomena that cannot be easily reconciled with the story of of modernity as a process of disenchantment and with a capitalist economy specifically as a victory of reason. You know, we can then break this down into different different levels of analysis, all of which point to structural elements in capitalism that we need to start writing about historically in terms of enchantment. So Maybe if we want to make it a little bit more concrete, very often when we're talking about um, the history of advertising, we tend to think, for example, about consumers being beguiled uh, by these images, uh, for example, and um, sort of almost losing their ability to be skeptical, for example, or to really think through uh, what is happening in that kind of moment of purchase or moment of consumption. But actually... I think if we recast sort of a, a kind of a different lens or a different, um, if we reconsider uh, what's happening in those moments and we try and, and, and untangle what it means to be enchanted by something, you start potentially unearthing a whole network, as it were, of uh, conditions, material conditions, but also kind of cognitive states, beliefs, cultural norms, all these things that can lead to what we then might call enchantment. There's another way of looking at, the, at what what the heck it can be is, and that's based on my own research, which I think approaches it from quite a different way as an often asked and to do is that I look at something what is often called the magical marketplace in the 19th and the 20th century. So you're talking 
not just about finding enchantment in capitalism as a superstructure, but you're really looking at the kind of magic, the service economy that developed and became nationally and global in this period of running uh, foes, um, occultists, exorcists, mystics that became celebrities that kind of, mm. uh, well, magical marketplace is probably the easiest short term to capture that variety of service economies that that came to develop in this period and that are also drivers of of a certain kind of enchantment and that in turn you could say that afterwards into different aspects of the economy one aspect of it is of course about economic rationality whether you know that can explain all behavioral aspects uh that's how how economic agents behave and the other way is more kind of structural or like you know these are not the two that would be Almost intuitive, right? Because we're used to, especially especially in recent decades, we're used to thinking about the irrational uh, that has been, you know, with with behavioral psychology. We we even have categories for some for, for some of these things, and and so it's intuitive to understand that people might expect the unexpected or the mysterious or the magical even though they don't have a knowledge base that would explain why. But the structural element comes in, I think, at least two levels. So one of them would be what what is the source of this mode of enchantment? Um, like Astrid, I am very much interested in the history of advertising. And here uh, I've, I've written about the, the formative era of of mass advertising in the 19th century. And if we, we if we ask how enchantment proliferates there, we need to account for the accumulation of adverts rather than individual ones. And we need to account for standard behaviors rather than individual choices alone. And so we're, we're really looking at an entire environment and mode of life that comes into being rather than about individual stories in order to explain uh, what is what is going on. So the accumulation of adverts and the, the emergence of an industry of advertising is one level of of describing a structural uh, phenomenon. You could you could add to that, and I think that's in a way that's something an article book does very well as well. Is that it's about a dynamic between the the individual and the structure or the collector. And with enchantment as a a, a research angle actually allows you to understand and pull apart that dynamic a little bit more, see how people engage with the structures that they're faced with or what they're part of or what they're confronted with. As soon as you rise above individual everyday uh, ev- law in everyday life, uh, to, to see repetitions and to see structures on the level of organizations and then on the level of local governments and state governments, you already see a structural phenomenon and you also see, as precisely as Christoph says, a, a, an interaction, a dynamic between what individuals do experience, understand, think, and how legal responses and legal uh, framings of that impact back on their experience. So there's the, the distinction perhaps is is hard to it's hard to hold on to. You need both levels in order to tell a story about enchantment. So let me ask you my second question. How do we use economic enchantments? By which let me specifically mean, you know, what does it offer us 
a new historiography for capitalism. It might be relevant to explain how this network uh, actually came about um, here, because I think there was a bit of a frustration in uh, some of the hist histories that we tell about consumer culture and advertising don't necessarily spend enough time really considering trying to understand why people would engage in the first place with things that, you know, are uh, clearly untrue. But I can give an example of how it uh, also kind of rears its head in contemporary settings, uh, which might be helpful. So I'm doing a little bit of research on influencers and my doctoral student, Helen Liu, uh, and I are looking at uh, influencers, Chinese influencers on Xiaohongshu. And what we found is that um, they are, of course, like many influencers on many social media platforms, subject to the algorithms that curate the content and how this con the content is uh, produced in front of their audiences on those platforms. And they're really, you know, a lot of the work that they put into creating their content is also put into trying to make sure that they become visible. Because that can feel very arbitrary sometimes, so sometimes they do put a lot of work into one video and it nothing happens and then they put very little work into another and suddenly that goes viral they were telling us that they feel like there is such a thing as sort of like um these graphic flows that almost feel like dark magic they're kind of there's an occult around that and they are sort of subjected to these forces that is so fascinating i'm, I'm thinking like i'm guessing a sense of the irrational or like the sense of unexplainable was always kind of Imbued in, let's say, how speculative economic speculation works, you know, how, how does that feature in like the historical work that you do? And I know Christoph works in the there's nothing your bedrooms economy explainable so. about the Belgian economy. So, in a way, it's very helpful. It's a very helpful case study. And I'm, I'm, I'm at the conference as well. I started to think <laughs> about what that does. What does enchantment do for me personally as a way to look at it as an it as methodologically to to understand anything on the first two, either a notion or a community, as a trace of um, imagination, but also mythologizing. And I've become much more attuned to the dynamics of myth making, of doubt, mystification of the one of those three than you know, let's say before I joined this this network. It's been from really practical point of view, a very personal and pragmatic it's been very useful for me to be in this network. Um is it also makes me think about not just about how mythologies work in the shaping of the national economy and the working or getting from the following, but also about how those myths then become modified while they themselves are part of the national identity. But I think even just to ask the question as a historian, what is a national economy or what defines a national or a global economy are questions that I think require an answer that at least departs from entitlement. Mm -hmm. It also makes me think um, at our recent conference, Lucy Corey Allen, about David Enchantment as a methodology too for historians. You approach economic processes or um, actions in a different angle as a way to measure or metaphysically how people in the past engage. It's, it's what we said earlier, engage with institutions um, with. If the market sort of sculptures or the market meeting of it on a daily basis, right? It's and I think we could add to the list a discussion a discussion of the common stories about capitalism. So if economic enchantments or stories about enchantments, studies of enchantment in the history of capitalism 
can save us. They can sort of save us from a self-understanding that is that is perpetuated not only through ideological narratives, but also in everyday practices of uh, of law, which describe capitalism as a as the onslaught of reason, as the onslaught of rationalism, and therefore treat the many ways in which people are non-rational as forms of failure or as a, or, or as a mode of absence, right? So the concept of biases, for example, of psychological biases are is, is a negative, it's in itself a negative concept in which something is missing, a perfect rationality as an ideal is, is somehow not there. But enchantment, and that, that has often driven my thinking about it, enchantment is not about an absence, it's about a very rich presence of possibilities, of dreams, of, of forces, of uh, things that have agency and are non-human uh, that surround us and that we might engage with. And so trying to unpack the, the content of that and trying to explain why this is, without it, we cannot account for the development of economic institutions, for the development of economic relationships, and maybe one day even the development of some forms of economic theory um, is is important. The other way of saving, by the way, which I was thinking about is raised in our conference, for example, by historians who work on and the history of astrology as a mode of financial advice. And so here we're looking at the way people are turning to commodified enchantment to save them. And that's another mode in which we can understand how it is saving us. Yeah. Um, one of you because I think you're one of the big one on this. Now, I'll turn my next quote and final question, which is how will economic enchantments the world? I'll build on what that said, which is, you know, we had a conference and uh, we had a brilliant set of papers. And if you look at what those papers were doing, if they kind of gave two ways, two, two pathways of understanding what enchantment does. And while it's not Clearly saving the world, I do think it is kind of sort of giving us a way, at, and as an essay, to like to kind of understand ourselves. One um, set of papers were really kind of talking about enchantment as a way to stave off the consequences of capitalism, um, as as trying as, as kind of using it as a coping mechanism or as a risk management strategy, or as a route to, as I said, self understanding. Uh, within the capitalist system and its dysfunctions. Um, and then and the other set of papers were actually using enchantment or positioning enchantment as a way to um, instill capitalist, capitalist logics in certain contexts um, as manipulating the markets, for example, as Annette said, you know, uh, using astrology uh, to either predict or influence the way the markets go. Um, and also as a way to channel class relations into concrete cultural expressions. Yeah, I can only really confirm it might not save the world, but I do think it's quite a necessary tool to really ask much broader questions as well about how we structure and organize an economy and how the economy can change the, the structures that we live in, not just on a national level, but also globally. It's about how we perceive that economy and about 
issues of modernity and postmodernity are they related to capitalism? As rooted in, in ratio or rational rationalization, or even in that binary of ratio and, and imagination. I do have to think that I've just been working on a very old 19th century case of a, of a Lemurian messiah pretending, you could say, a Christ of the temple who did think economic enchantment could save the world, actually. You know, we need, um, we basically presented himself as Christ as an, as an explicit way to enforce economic reform in, in, in England in the 1830s. Well, I think it's quite a nice image, although this, this symbolizes an area in believers in that work, especially at the point When we say, will it save the world, we don't make a judgment call there, but rather take seriously the fact that some of our subjects turn to what we might describe as enchanted ontologies or commodified enchantments uh, like astrology or witchcraft. Uh, or fortune-telling that is being paid for in the market. They turn to these things with an expectation of somehow saving saving themselves even from harm or from or from fear or from difficulty, as Astrid says. Um, and if they are if they're doing that, that in itself is important to the way the economy evolves. Therefore, we need to study it, not because we have sort of preposition about whether it's wrong. I guess uh, my absolute final final question is, anyway, what's what's coming up for your research group? We we're still talking about this. So after the the conference, uh, we have some resources on our website um, that you know you can have a look at. Uh, some wonderful podcasts that Christoph has has done uh, with leading scholars in the field, and a few more that will hopefully uh, that will do over the coming months. Um, we are hopefully also going to be publishing uh, something together. Uh, we're looking into potential special issue, um, but we can give further. We'll we'll we'll, we'll issue further details. Uh, yeah, in due time, and um, we will also we will also have uh, two meetings in the coming academic year: uh, reading groups uh, or working progress meetings that everyone is really welcome to. So we'll publish details on the website. Um, and those will be online, uh, or at least hybrid in any case. And, um, and so we'll, we look forward to continuing kind of the discussions we've been having with the group, uh, and beyond through those. Thank you so much. Ah, you're so passionate, Wim Vermont. We're coming to Haiti over. Thank and you. And the fun to us Thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>